0: That was sweet, wasn't it? Love hearing God's people in chorus together. Well, if you have your Bibles, how about if you put them away? Because you know what's coming, right? Um, if you're new here to New Hope, we've been taking questions over the last month, and um, as they've been coming in, um, we've been trying to put them into categories because uh, didn't know what to expect. How many questions would come in over the course of uh, three different services, three different groups of people here, and questions that came in all over the spectrum, uh, 67 questions came in, and of those 67, they do indeed range from, are there dinosaurs in the Bible, to are we living in the last days? So I had to find a way to categorize them so that we can a- a- approach them appropriately. So today, what we're going to approach is what I would consider some of the easier questions, um, and this happens to do, to, to do with general theology, uh, excellent questions, by the way, that came in, and I believe you're going to find biblical answers for the, for the questions that were presented. I want you to know how my heart is approaching this. As I started preparing for this a month ago, um, immediately God laid this verse on my mind from the book of James, which reminds me that I stand accountable before God. And literally, James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, brethren. For we will incur a stricter judgment. that verse should make you, if you 're a teacher of God 's word, shudder, not because you 're not redeemed. i don 't stand before God as someone who's unredeemed or not saved, but rather, I recognize that I am accountable for what I teach you, and I 'm accountable to God. So I come with a real true sense of humility this morning of i 'm um, I'm, I'm far more afraid of Him than I am of you, okay? Just to keep it in context. Um, and, and so there may be things that you disagree with me on. You may not like some of the answers that you hear, especially over the course of the next couple of weeks. A couple of the questions that came in were really, really difficult. And those ones we're not necessarily getting to today. Although if you've already read through the list that's in your bulletin, you may have seen a few on there that you think are pretty hard. Um, especially the 12th one. We're, we're going to get through 12 questions today, and I promise to get you out of here before the kickoff of the Detroit Lions football game, which happens to be at 4.30 this afternoon. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just joking. I, I haven't had anybody um, not get out of here in a reasonable time yet. So um, That there isn't another service after this one allows me to expand, perhaps, but we'll see. Um, I I, uh, want to pray with you before we get into the questions and just ask you if you would join me in inviting God's Spirit to really be our teacher. Would you do that? Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that all truth resides with you and that you have given us the spirit of truth according to your word. The Holy Spirit who is present within us and who inhabits this auditorium will be our teacher and our guide, so we invite that. We invite the presence of the Holy Spirit here, Father, that you would lead us and you would give us wisdom and you would give us insight, even in areas where we're uncomfortable. Speak to us with your truth. Allow your word to be, indeed, what you've called it, alive and active, and we will be content with that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Truly, John 16, 13 says the, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. And so that's why we lean into the Holy Spirit. We come into this first question, and it's, um, I, I actually rank these first 12 um, according to starting out with the easier ones and working into the harder ones. This is probably going to feel a little um, disjointed because we're just going to take them straightforward and matter of fact, but here's the first one. Life on other planets, do you believe why or why not? Well, the sci-fi guy in me really wants to believe, um, so I, I'm a Star Trek fan, I love all the sci-fi movies, but the truth of scriptures is, no, I don't believe in life, intelligent life on other planets, and I'll explain why and, and give you a biblical understanding of that. First of all, we understand that God created all that he created within a finite period of time, and so he said specifically, what I'm creating is for my glory, both heaven and earth, that means everything that's in the heavens, Right? So everything that was created was created within a finite time for the purpose and for the glory of God. Now this response will make a little bit more sense by the time we get to the 12th question, why is there evil in the world? But just hear me out on this, on this first question. Our God created everything for his glory, both heavens and earth. Therefore, when he created the entire universe, he understood as an omniscient God why he was creating what he would create, putting his glory on display. So if we live in a world in which there are intelligent, immortal beings, those of us, we have souls, so we are immortal, we are eternal beings. If we were created in God's image and God knew that we would fall, therefore God had a plan in place by which he would redeem those eternal beings. That would have to be the case of every other planet where there would be intelligent life as well. Because when the angels rebelled against God, their sin not only contaminated earth, their sin was against the God of heaven. The sin was in heaven. So therefore, the entire universe was contaminated with sin because of the rebellion of the angels. Scripture very much backs that up because God says, I will create one day a new heaven and a new earth because the old will be wiped away because the old has been contaminated by the fall of sin. So that would mean that Jesus would have to again reappear on other planets for other fallen, eternal, intelligent beings. But yet God poured all his glory and all of his purpose into one particular planet, which boggles my mind. Another thought along that same line is this, and this goes to the issue of do you have an old earth view or a young earth view? Because the question of whether or not there's life on other planets is really a question of evolution. Meaning this, um, individuals who lean into the thought that there's intelligent life on other planets who are able to transverse the universe and travel are saying that those individuals have lived longer than us. But God says he created everything in a finite period of time. And within our span of time alive here on planet Earth, we have been able to get to the point where we can send probes to Mars or we can send men to the moon but we can't travel much further than that. If we were saying that there's intelligent life who has lived longer than us, what we're saying is this issue of evolution really trumps the issue of God saying, I created everything. So very straightforward, there's a response to that. Next one's a little bit more of a softball question. Dinosaurs, are they found in the Bible? I would say my perspective is yes, they are found in the Bible. And I'll take you to the book of Job, Job chapter 40 and chapter 41. And they're referred to as Leviathan and Behemoth. And I want to help you to understand this from uh, this context. When we think of dinosaurs, we think of creatures who no longer walk planet Earth, but at one time did walk planet Earth. So, for instance, if today we didn't have grizzly bears alive among us, and they went out of existence perhaps 1,000 years ago, we would say that animal has gone extinct. Eventually, someone would find the bones of a, a grizzly bear and say, wow, look at this weird creature with these giant fangs, like a dinosaur. Well, we tend to use that term to attach it to creatures that have gone out of existence. God speaks in the book of Job of creatures that we no longer see here on planet Earth. And I want to give you this one description of what's known as Leviathan and see if you've ever seen a creature like this. Uh, Job chapter 41, and a few verses here, verse 7 and 8 says this, Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Verse 8, lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Um, This is God speaking. Remember, he's talking to Job. And then skip down to verse 18, His sneezes flash forth light. And his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Verse 20, out of his nostril smoke goes forth as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes forth from his mouth. What's that make you think of? Yeah, I mean, how bizarre is that? I've never seen one of those. But why is God using that? Well, God is talking to a man who is alive on planet Earth at that time, Job. The book of Job is the oldest book of the Bible chronologically. It was written long before any of the other books. And we see God using a real description, physical description, of a being that Job must have been familiar with. Otherwise, God wouldn't have used it. And he said to him, have you considered Leviathan? Meaning that Job knew what Leviathan was. And so God uses this reference to say, there's a creature here that I've created that is so mighty you can't possibly even grasp his strength. The truth is that throughout the world, nearly every ancient civilization has artwork of some form that represents dinosaurs and man interacting. So this question really goes to old earth versus young earth view. So I had to do a little research and come up with um, uh, an image for you to help contextualize this. There was a discovery that was made in the Cambodian jungles in 2007. And this particular discovery has really caused archaeologists to start scratching their heads because they're trying to figure out, how is this possible? Let me explain what you're seeing. If you look in the center of the screen, you see the carving of a stegosaurus. And that stegosaurus is is very detailed. He's got the the fins on his back and down his tail. And you get a close-up of the image you will discover that he's also got the horns coming from his head like a stegosaurus would have. Here's the remarkable thing about this. It was discovered in the Cambodian jungles in 2007 on a temple that was built in 1259 A.D. Now, how does someone living in the Cambodian jungles in 1259 A.D. even have an idea what a stegosaurus looks like that matches the same artwork that we have today? Well, it really goes to the question of the old earth versus the young earth view. Are dinosaurs found in the Bible? I would say, yes, God's got a description there of creatures that we don't understand that no longer walk the earth. If you want to do some more research on it yourself, here's a website for you. And it's called AnswersInGenesis.org. Especially if you have children in your world and you want to talk them through some of these issues, go to this website. I think it will really help you with a biblical understanding. So AnswersInGenesis.org. Here's the next question, a little bit harder. Are the spirits of deceased people allowed to occupy the temporal world? There's a little more meat that goes along with this question, and and I'll give it to you. It's not in your notes necessarily, but here's, uh, here's a little bit more behind this question. If so, under what authority can they do so? My question is based in part on the story of King Saul visiting the witch of Endor. Who conjured the spirit of Samuel, who complained of being disturbed, then predicted Saul's downfall. How do you interpret this story? Are the spirits of deceased people allowed to inhabit this world? My straightforward answer is no, but I want to take you to the Bible and show you some reasoning behind this. And we're going to bring up specifically this encounter with a witch. First Samuel chapter 28, and here's the background behind it. King Saul was about to lose his throne. He was going to go into battle with the Philistines the very next day, and within 24 hours, he would lose his life in battle. He was afraid of what was going to happen. He didn't know what the future held, so he had his servants hunt down a medium, a sorcerer or a a witch, we would call her today. And what you pick up here in 1 Samuel 28, verse 11, is midstream into the midst of the story, Saul consulting a witch, although he's done it in a disguise, and he hasn't let her know who he is. We pick it up in verse 11. Then the woman, this is the witch speaking, the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, why have you deceived me, for you are Saul? The king said to her, do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. Now, if you go on to read the story later today yourself, what you're going to see is that the statements that come from this Spirit who has come up from the earth are in full agreement with what we know of Samuel. Matter of fact, word for word, there's no deception involved. And he speaks clearly and specifically of things only God could know, especially about Saul's death. Now, whether or not this witch saw Samuel or saw an apparition, Her reaction is what you should notice. She is shocked. Matter of fact, in the Hebrew language, it says she's terrified, and so she screams out. Why? Because she's seeing something she's never seen before. Even as a medium, she's never called up a spirit in this way, and it's an extraordinary event. She's afraid because she's not in control. So Saul, in response, says, What do you see? Because he can't see it himself. So she describes it and says, I see a spirit. Saul wants to know what he looks like, and he's convinced that it's Samuel. Now, in a straightforward reading of the Bible, if you take the account just as it is, it suggests this, a true possibility that mediums have a capacity to connect living beings with people on planet Earth. That's not what really should get your attention, because we've known that spiritual spiritual activity like that is as old as time. What should really get your attention is this. God forbids people to dabble in the occult. God says occultic-like practices lead you into Satanism. And what seems like very innocent games sometimes that even creep their way into our house can cause irreparable damage. Speaking specifically of things like Ouija boards and tarot cards and people who go in for palm readings, individuals who consult sorcerers, modern-day mediums, are really dabbling in things that God says, don't mess with that. Because it is real, it's something we have to avoid. Why? Because what it's really indicating is that we're trying to lean into a supernatural source other than leaning into God. And God says, I want you to lean into me. So let's, let's look at what God's word says specifically about this. Isaiah eight nineteen. he's speaking of seances. It says this, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? So we understand that consistently, even in the New Testament, Saul or Paul had to write about this because sorcery was alive and active at the time of Jesus. Look with me on the screen, Galatians 5.19. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Why? Because it was alive and active at that time. So verse 21 goes on to say, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now the next question that we come to, who is Cain's father? You might read that and say, oh wait, why did that make it into the list? How come that one was chosen? I got better questions than that. Well, there's a reason for it. and You'll understand it as I explain it. So this question comes with a little bit more meat behind it. It says, he is not listed in the genealogy of Adam. That's a very important question. Why is Cain not shown in the genealogy of Adam? And and why is that significant or important to me? Sometimes the answers in the Bible are so clear and obvious that they seem as though they contrast with another verse in the Bible, and people use it to say, well, there's disparity. The Bible doesn't agree. This is one of those examples. Now, let me show you, first of all, the answer to the question. Genesis 4, verse 1 says this, Now the man, meaning Adam... Had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. And she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the soil. Now, biblical genealogy is really important to understand when you get to the birth of Jesus, because we're told that Jesus came through the line of promise. So when this person says, Who is Cain's father? He's not listed in the genealogy of Adam. You need to understand that answer because it directly relates to Jesus. We know that Cain murdered Abel. Cain's famous for saying, am I my brother's keeper? Even though he knew where his brother was at, he had murdered him. So Abel is dead. Cain has been banished. Therefore, Adam and Eve need another child because God said there would be a deliverer coming one day who would be born through the line of promise. So, enter Seth. Look specifically with me at chapter 5, verse 3 of the book of Genesis. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Very important because Seth is in the line of Jesus. He is in the line of the child of promise who would come in the future. So, Abel's been murdered, Cain is alive, but he's been banished. So there's a new child born, and we're told specifically when Jesus arrives on the scene in the Christmas story, Luke chapter 3, verse 23, what you thought was maybe not that interesting before, all of a sudden becomes really interesting because it says this, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mattath, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, and it goes on to list all the generations. By the time you get to verse 38, it says this, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's why that becomes an important question so that you really understand the Bible is very true and very accurate. And so when Jesus was born as the child of promise to redeem the world, he came through this line that God had ordained in the beginning. Now we go to the next question. Do we go to heaven immediately after we die? Pretty good question. Um, A little bit more... Meet behind this one as well, and let me give you some background on it. It goes on to say this, I have been persuaded slightly by a friend that we are asleep in the ground until the return of Christ. The majority of Scripture I have found says we are sleeping or asleep. My friend also states that if the ones that have passed are truly in heaven, then there must be two judgments. Without having been judged, how did the ones who enter heaven or hell get their place? First of all, a really good resource for you to go to is a book by Randy Elkhorn called Heaven. And this particular book, if you, if you love to read and do your own research, you'll really enjoy this particular piece of material. He did a great job with it. But the quick answer is to take you to the book of Corinthians, specifically 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you've grown up in the church, these two verses at first are going to seem really familiar to you, but I'm going to give you a little background on it so you understand it a little bit more. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6 says this, Therefore, being always of good courage... And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So you're tracking with him so far? He said, You're living in a physical body here on earth. You're absent from the presence of God. So it goes on to say, verse 7 For we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8 We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. He's implying something there, that if you leave this body, then you're present with God, right? We take that fairly straightforward in that reading. But what's really important to understand that is verses one through five because he made some big statements, especially when he said in verse six, therefore. The therefore is important because it leans back into verses one through five. So verses one through five say this. You won't see it on the screen. Just hear me out. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, anybody here living in a tent today? Your physical body is your tent, right? So if you're here on earth, you're in a physical body, God says this is like a tent. It's just a temporary dwelling. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, meaning something more permanent is coming. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, for indeed in this house we groan. You understand that? You're living in this tent. Anybody groaning this morning? Your physical body feeling like it's fighting against you? Feeling a little pain there? Okay, Paul's relating to this. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Verse 4, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared for us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. You can look that up later yourself in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but what you're being told is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit within you as a pledge to guarantee that you will one day be present with God. You love to worship and sing? That's the Holy Spirit working within you. You love to look into the things of God, God's Word? That's the Holy Spirit within you. You desire to hang out with the people of God? That's the Holy Spirit within you. That's all the pledge, the things that are going on within you. You're you're saying, this is different than the way I used to be. That's the Holy Spirit's activity. So he uses it in verse 6, this big word, Therefore, therefore be always of good courage because this earthly tent is about to pass away. Now, verse 6 and verse 8 seem like a repeat of each other. But here's what's going on. Verse 6 really is, in effect, he's saying the residence in the body means absence from the Lord. But the effect of verse 8 is absence from the body means residence with the Lord. And the word you have to key in on is the word with. In the Greek language, it's the word prose. And it speaks specifically not just of location, but location in relationship. The word prose in the Greek language, when it's used in combination with a physical location and a relationship with someone, it speaks of being in intimate relationship. So what do we understand by being involved with this comment? We'll be at home with the Lord. It literally is indicating to us, at the moment of death, into the presence of God. The moment that your eyes close and your heart stops beating, you are with God, you are in fellowship with Him, there is no in-between stage. So just to be very clear, that's the way I interpret this passage. That means you're going to have a new experience beyond anything that you've ever known here on planet Earth because we know Jesus through God's Word. We know Him through the activity of the Spirit in our life, but we don't really know Him because we haven't been with Him At that moment, we're with him. Okay, here comes a more difficult one. Which churches are real Christian churches? Getting a little dicey, isn't it? Okay, so there's actually a number of people who send in questions related to that same thing. Um, Which Christian denominations are not real Christian denominations? Or which Christian organizations are they? In other words, using it in name only. Best way to answer this is to take you to God's Word, because God speaks very clearly about who really belongs to Christ. It says this in Galatians 1, chapter 1, verse 8, "...but even if we," Paul speaking of himself, "...or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed." As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. For I am now seeking am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Jesus' response to that same question is even better. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. So if a church or an organization is not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus come incarnate, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, and coming again, they are totally missing what the gospel really is. That is the gospel, and to reject that truth is to reject Jesus. So regardless of how moral a person might seem when they come to your door with a name badge on saying, hey, I want to talk to you about Another form of Jesus, you really need to take very seriously what they're saying. Because we understand that God is very, very clear about who Jesus is. The Son of God, come for the salvation of the world. So regardless of how moral an organization may seem to be, if they're not teaching him Jesus crucified, they're not teaching the real Jesus. They are therefore not real Christians. I had an individual come to me after the Saturday night service last night who said, hey, you know what, just yesterday morning I had someone come knocking to my door. And I answered the door and they did the, the hello, um, we're here representing um, this organization called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Can we talk to you about Jesus Christ? And she said, well, I would love to talk to you about that because I know the real Jesus and I will help you understand who he is. And... and they responded to her by saying, well, do you go to church someplace? And she said, yeah, I actually, my son and I, we attend New Hope Church. And they both responded with, what is it about that church? Every door we go to. <laughs> they turned around and left, and she gave them gave a piece of material. So I, I love the conversation. I won't fill you in on all the details, but nonetheless, hear me on this. A real church, a church that Jesus designed is that which exalts Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. Nothing different than that. Let's move on to the next one. How does our Lord interpret suicide? Death with dignity. And incidentally, this person and others who asked the same question cited the recent death of Brittany Maynard in Oregon, the assisted suicide situation. I understand this is a very sensitive issue, and I, I Want to make sure I handle it that way, but what I'm going to give you is a biblical response to it. This response has nothing to do with the pain that the families feel who are left behind when someone commits suicide. It's merely this question how does God view suicide? So I'll take you to a verse that you may not have expected me to bring up, but here's a a particular verse I want you to see. It comes from the book of Job again, Job chapter 1 and verses 20 and 22. Now understand the background. Job is in. Horrible straits at this point. His life is miserable. And this is his comment. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. Verse 21. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin. Nor did he blame God. Now Job has lost his family, he's lost his finances, he's lost his house, he's lost his health. If anybody has a reason to commit suicide, Job does. As a matter of fact, his wife says to him, why don't you just end your life? It's miserable. So Job has this response, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Meaning this, and it would be backed up with other passages in Scripture, God alone has the right to take away life. So when we take life, we're taking God's authority upon ourselves. We're denying him the right, and so we're assuming it upon ourselves. because God alone knows the beginning from the end. Let me take you to a New Testament passage that might seem a little more sympathetic with this issue to help you understand perhaps the framework of someone who is incredibly depressed whom you wouldn't think to think of committing suicide. But I want to take you to 2 Corinthians, again, specifically to verses 8 and 9 from chapter 1, and hear what Paul had to say. You're going to hear despair, perhaps, in a way you haven't heard it before. Verse 8 from chapter 1 says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to, which came to us in Asia, that we... I'm sorry, I'll start again. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Sounds like somebody who's on the edge, right? Right there on the string. He's despairing even of life, to the point that he felt that there was this sentence of death within him. Verse 9, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. And then he goes on to say this, here's the because, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So how do we respond to this question? How does God interpret suicide, death with dignity? Well, it's sin, first of all, to be very, very clear. The Word of God is is quite explicit about someone taking God's authority upon themselves is committing sin. However, I want to be very quick to say, it is not The greatest sin. It is not the unforgivable sin. There is only one unpardonable sin. So there's false teaching that exists in the world today, specifically organizations which teach that if someone commits suicide, they go directly to hell. I will tell you, you will not find that in the Bible. That's a tradition of men. That is not something that God said. So how does God view suicide? one person went on to ask the question this particular way. He said it, I had a grandpa who loved our family and we loved him. He had many health issues but recently took his life, leaving behind this explanation that he couldn't take the physical pain anymore. I can't stand the thought of never seeing him again. Some pain behind that, right? Okay, the reality of the response to that from God's word is this. The reality of seeing a loved one again is not based on whether or not they committed suicide, but whether or not they had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because Scripture is very clear, there's only one unforgivable sin, and that is the sin of rejecting Jesus. God says, that's the unpardonable sin. I can't forgive that. I sent my son to die for you. But committing suicide is not the unforgivable sin. It is a sin. Let's move forward. Um, We've got one more that's coming up that I'm going to pass over until next time. It's it's, uh, what are God's promises to us. Literally, I ran out of time while I was prepping for this, so I couldn't get to it this time. We'll have to come back to it later. The next one that comes right after it, though, is this. My friend accepted Jesus many years ago and is quite familiar with the Bible. He has said to me, when bad things happen in my life, it's because you asked for it. I say no. No. I did not understand my actions and contemplate the consequences. So, does what we do or not do reflect on what we ask for? My response, first of all, is this. Be very, very careful about who you get advice from. Okay? I've had many relatives and well-meaning individuals in my life, growing up, especially as a young man, who tried to speak what they thought was biblical truth into my life, only to find out later they were way off they took the traditions of men or Aunt Edna or Uncle Frank's interpretation and tried to put it on you as biblical truth. And so individuals will assume sometimes that they think they know and then they just repeat something or regurgitate what someone else has said to them. So be very, very careful about who you get advice from. Here's the answer to this question that this person put out there. Choices have consequences. Are are there consequences in which God immediately punishes Negative actions against him? Absolutely. Are there consequences in which God allows it to go out for a very long period of time without punishing? Yeah, absolutely. Here's a bigger question. Are there long-term consequences for living in defiance of God? Yes, both here on earth and for sure in eternity. But let's reverse it and look at it from the opposite side. Are there circumstances in which you're going to face difficulties in your life? which seem to have no correlation whatsoever to your behavior. In other words, are there bad things that happen to good people? Absolutely. There's bad things that happen to good people because we live in a fallen world. For so, so, for, so for someone to assume that just because something bad has happened in your life, that's God's judgment on you, you need to help them understand the Bible a little bit more clearly, especially when James says this, James chapter 1, verse 2, "...consider it all joy, my brethren," When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. In other words, God allows some testing to come into your life to help sharpen the edge of who you are, to produce a greater work in your life. Let's move on to the next one. Please explain the difference between mature believers and immature believers. Love this question. This is a softball right down the middle. I'll take you first to a resource that I really personally like. It had a huge impact in my life when I was in my 30s. Um, this, this book called Experiencing God by De- Dr. Henry Blackaby. Knowing and doing the will of God. You're struggling with finding the will of God for your life? Pick up this book and spend some time. Shut off the TV and just delve into it and, and really read it and understand what God's word has to say. But here's big picture. You want a short synopsis coming out of God's word and coming out of this book? God invites us to join him in his work. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not just so that you can live out the rest of your life here on planet Earth and do nothing about God's kingdom, but rather God invites you into his work. He invites you to be engaged with him. So here's the problem where many of us stumble, and I did this myself until I picked up this book, Experiencing God. I typically would find things that I wanted to do and then ask God to come over and bless it. I had the master-servant relationship backwards, right? See, in the master-servant relationship, the servant goes to the master and says, what would you like me to do? My temptation was always to go to God and say, here's what I'm doing, would you come bless it? So when we have the servant-master relationship backwards, we're bound to be confused about the will of God in our life. So God's very specific about what maturing faith looks like. How do you know if you're maturing in Christ or not? He gives some answers for us, and specifically out of the book of Galatians. So let's just start right here, very briefly. We're told this, Galatians 2:20. I have been crucified with Christ. He's making a statement. If you're a believer, your old self has been put to death. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself up for me. So he's declaring truth about who you are. no longer lost to sin, you're someone who's alive in Jesus because of what He did. So some individuals went on to ask the same question in a different way. What happens when we don't trust God? Where do God's free will and plan meet? How do those things link together? How do we know if we're trusting God? Is there a test? Well, yes, there is a test. I don't know if you've ever seen it in the Bible before. But you can measure yourself against God's standards. So let me take you to the test. And it comes out of Galatians 5.22 and and um, chapter 5 specifically in verse 16. Paul speaking, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another." so that you may not do the things that you please, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, he's going to come up with a list next. And the list is of negative activity, things that we can do in our life that make us think, man, maybe I'm not maturing. Maybe there is no growth. Let me take you to that. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, impurity, Sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You read that, and it should set you on edge and think, whoa, what's that saying? I mean, like, I can say I've lost my temper. Right? Are you tracking with me? Are you looking at that and making it, does it cause you to feel a little bit unsettled inside? saying, What's he saying here about, because this, some of this looks like normal human activity. Some of it's way out there, but I don't practice idolatry. I certainly don't go to sorcerers, but man, envying? So and he says those people don't inherit the kingdom of God. Well, let's look at the contrast. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, here's my encouragement for you measure yourself against this list. How are you doing? Are you further along in your walk with Jesus today than you were a year ago? Are you putting to death those things of the flesh? or do they constantly revisit you on a regular basis? Here's the reason I ask that. There's a word that's used in the midst of that passage, and it's the word practice. Blair's going to throw back up on the screen there again, Galatians 5.19. And if, if you look at the very bottom last sentence, the word practice that's underlined, in the Greek language, it's the word proso. And it means habitually. It means a way of life. So when he makes this list, those who lose their temper, drunkenness, envying, strife. It's those who are consumed with it day in and day out. It's constantly part of their activity. In other words, there's no life change. There's no evidence of the Spirit being alive in that person. So what's the difference between a maturing and an immature Christian? Well, look at that list and compare yourself. Where are you at on that gradient scale? Are you putting to death those things of the flesh Are you exhibiting more of the fruits of the Spirit? Patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Let's move forward. We've got this last couple questions here. And this one's a biggie. Does God change his mind in response to our prayers? There's a little more meat behind this one. This particular person asked this question. Theologically, I assume the answer is no, since God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But as I was reading through 2 Kings chapter 20 and verses 1 through 7, it appears as though he does, just wondering how you might respond. Now, you know I'm going to take you to 2 Kings and help you to understand the background of the story. But know this this isn't the only place in the Bible where it appears like God changes his mind. As as though God's mind can be changed. We see this in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we see this in the account of Nineveh, when Jonah was told to go to Nineveh. So let's look at 2 Kings chapter 20 and understand what's going on here. Here's a king who was a righteous man, who lived a godly life, and yet he's visited by God's prophet Isaiah, and he's told, Your days are numbered, get your house in order, you're gonna die. Look with me up on the screen, 2 Kings chapter 20, and verses 1 through 5. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah, the prophet of the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. Now at first it appears as though Hezekiah will not live and he's got to prepare to die. Hezekiah refuses to accept that as the verdict, as being final. He does what he's done throughout his entire life. Now this is a man who has fallen to his knees and acknowledged the God of the universe throughout his lifespan. And he begins pleading with God. So we know that there's a pattern to Hezekiah's life. And here's the pattern. Keeping this in context, this is a man who's consumed with pride. He's the king of a mighty nation. And he says it himself, he struggles with arrogance because of what he's achieved and what he has And so constantly, he finds himself falling back on his knees and repenting and asking God to intervene. So now we find him at the end of his life, what seems to be a logical sequence of events, he's going to die, and he does what Israelites have done for eons. He follows a tradition of a lament, a personal lament. So what he starts to do is he cites his own character. And then he says to God, here's how righteously I have lived. And then he declares who God is. And all three of these things are true. They're not arrogant. He's just stating the truth. And God answers his prayer immediately. Now, we need to keep the story in context so that we don't just take one passage right there and say, well, that should apply to everybody then. Keep the story in context in the fact that Isaiah the prophet who came to him is the same one who wrote what you are about to read in the book of Isaiah about the nature and character of God when it comes to God changing his mind, Isaiah 46, 8 through 11 says this God speaking Remember this and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purposes will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. So it sounds like our God's a pretty concrete God, right? So to assume King Hezekiah's immediate fate was sealed is a presumption from a human perspective. We think as we're reading this through a human lens, we understand what's going on. The way I can help best contextualize this for you is to take you back to the hero series when we were talking about Moses. Moses was in dialogue with God about Pharaoh. Moses was giving all the reasons why he should not go to Pharaoh, why it wouldn't work. And God responded to Moses by saying, Moses, I know Pharaoh's heart, that he will harden it against me. Nevertheless, I am going to send you to him anyway. What does that tell us? Our God understands human hearts. God knew Hezekiah's very proud heart and his issue of arrogance in his life. So because of arrogance and pride, we look at this through human eyes, and we would say through arrogance and pride, we're changing the mind of God. But God says about himself, I already know my purposes. I already know my plans. Everything that I purpose will be established. So in reality, what we're doing when we're praying, when we come before God the Father, is what we're asking for is for Him to release His power into the situation. Asking God to accomplish His purposes. Because arrogance will say, I changed God's mind. Humility will say, I asked God to rescue me. It's the same issue from a different perspective. It just depends on how you approach Scripture. So, do we change the mind of God? Absolutely not. Does God hearken His ear to our request? Absolutely. He responds, and He pours out His blessing. So let's move forward. Um, We've answered that question. Last two questions. How do we practically serve the church? And it follows up with this little bit of an issue. It says, uh, and also maintain a healthy understanding of when to say no and not get burned out. And or feeling guilty about not participating. Anybody identify with that? Okay. Um, two great resources for you that had an influence on in my life. First of all, the book Margins by Dr. Richard Townsend. Uh, Dr. Or Swenson. I mean, Dr. Swenson had a, a excellent materials produced in the 90s. I believe it's still in print. And this word uh, bound or this uh, book Boundaries by Townsend. First of all, hear this from me as your senior pastor. You have permission to say no. All right. You have permission to say no. It's okay. Don't stress out about people expecting you to serve. You have permission to say no. But saying no is not a license in your life to refuse what God has called you to do. This really goes back to the master-servant relationship issue. Who's in control? So if God has called you to an activity, you best respond. But if it's mankind putting guilt and Keeping weight upon you, you have permission to say no. Here's how Lori and I have rectified this in our life. Over the course of, since we got married when we were 22 years of age, a lot of opportunities to serve over the course of those years. Here's how we've balanced it. Balance your time in your life like you would balance your finances, balance the budget of your time. Look at the span of a month or a week and say, Do I have an hour? Can I show up at 9.15 and serve in children's ministry and still go to the 11 o'clock service? Well, absolutely. It really comes down to the issue of of, of balancing deliberately. So measure yourself. Do you have room in your life to serve? So if you have room in your life to play lots of golf or to to go to baseball games or to go to basket weaving or, I don't know, whatever you do with your time for entertainment. I don't mean basket weaving, but it just came to mind, okay? So... (laughs) Whatever you do in your life for entertainment, is there a fair balance between that and the opportunities to serve in the kingdom of the Christ who redeemed you? So I I would ask it this way. Is what I'm involved in of lasting, eternal value? And it doesn't have to be just in the church. Perhaps you're serving at the mission, helping homeless people get a meal. Or perhaps you're picking up supplies for the shoebox ministry. Or perhaps you're giving somebody a ride to church. Whatever way you determine serving to be. But always balance it against that question. Is what I'm doing of lasting eternal value? Oh, shoot, I haven't quite run out of time, so I've got to do this last question. <laughs> Why is there evil in the world? Uh, in all seriousness, we've addressed this many times here at New Hope. And yet, I don't ever want to assume that people know the, the answer to this. And so I'm, I'm going to give you what seems like a fairly factual, straightforward answer, but understand why. There's some really, really hard questions that came in that are coming up. Especially when we get into next week and the week after with some of the questions related to are we the last generation? Why is there so much evil rampant in this world? Why does it seem to be increasing? Are we in the last days? This is the number one question that came in over and over and over again. Why? Because we're hypersensitive to it. It seems like things are coming apart at the seams. And I know especially when you're in your 20s, You don't want to hear that you're living in the last days because you want to be thinking, I want to be living my life out. i got a a lot of life left in me. So how do we respond to that? Well, the framework for understanding that comes from this question. It's really rooted in this question. Why is there evil in the world? Here's some of the other questions that came in, almost parallel to it. If God is omnipotent, then why is there evil? Where did evil get its start? Why did Satan rebel? Where did his evil desires come from in the first place? Here's a big one. What made him even think that he wanted to be greater than God or that he could be? I can't answer that last one. I have no idea. I'm saving that one for eternity. I will ask God himself. The Bible doesn't tell us why he assumed that. But what I'm going to give you are two verses that are actual factual events, things that will help us understand how was evil unleashed upon the universe, The first one comes from Jesus himself. He's speaking of an actual moment in time. Jesus said this in Luke 10, 18, speaking to his disciples. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now that verse should give you some great insights. First of all, it reminds us that Jesus is eternal, that he was there at the moment that it happened, in eternity past, when Satan rebelled, and that he saw it, that it actually happened. When Satan rebelled, all of the angels who rebelled against God were cast from God's presence. Now, the next verse I want to take you to helps you to understand this a little bit better when Isaiah writes about it in chapter 14. "'How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations.'" But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. He's speaking of the moment in time when Lucifer rebelled and said, I will set up my throne above the throne of God. And he led a third of the angels in rebellion against heaven, against God. And there was war in heaven. Of all things to consider, war in heaven. And that's the moment in which the angels fell. Now, those are the factual events that Scripture speaks to about how was evil unleashed upon this universe. Well, it happened there. That's the original sin, the first sin. But let's take more of a 30,000-foot view. And this will be hard for some of you to receive and to hear because I'm, I'm sure you've never heard it this way before. First of all, accept the fact that our God is omnipotent and omniscient, meaning this, He has unlimited power and unlimited knowledge. Do you agree with me on that? Okay. If God is God, He's unlimited in all areas. Unlimited power, unlimited knowledge. He says to Moses on Mount Sinai, I am full of grace and mercy, and I abound in it. There's no limit to my abilities. In other words, I am without limitations. So hear this. This is the hard part. God allowed Lucifer to rebel. He allowed Lucifer's rebellion to play out. He knew in advance that when he created the Garden of Eden, that Lucifer, as Satan, would enter and tempt Adam and Eve. I want to help you to understand that as the weeks unfold, because this issue of, are we in the last days? Is this the last generation? Is really seeded in this question, why is there evil in the world? When God created the Garden of Eden, Understanding that there would be this temptation, it was so that God could put his mercy and his grace, his glory on display. And that is very, very hard for people to accept. That God does everything that he does so that all his purposes will be accomplished. In other words, that he would be glorified. Now, that will make more sense as we move forward in time, but let me take you to a verse that will help you understand this for your own life today, especially if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Look with me on the screen at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. We're told this about ourselves. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Now, this really goes to the issue of predestination, although we're not getting into it right now. That question was asked, but this is bigger. This is about the presence of evil. First of all, we understand two specific things coming out of that verse. Number one, that there was already a plan in place. That He chose us before the foundation of the world means before creation, before the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve rebelled, God had already known the choosing That tells us there was a plan in place even before all this unfolded. Number two, that we would need choosing means that our God foreknew. You understand? You tracking with me on that? God knew before the sin was ever committed because He wanted to put His glory on display. So here's the real issue. If God did not know beforehand we have a far larger issue than whether or not there's evil in the world. That would mean God's not in control. And who wants to serve a God who can be surprised? Not me. So can God be surprised or not be surprised? God says, I know all my purposes. There's nothing that happens without my control. I know everything that's unfolding. It is for my good purposes. So God is never surprised It's always, church, always for the glory of God. And if you're here this morning as a follower in Jesus Christ, He chose you. How cool is that? I know the predestination issue really goes to your mind immediately. We're not going there right now. So we're going to wrap it up this morning, thanking God for giving us understanding through the Holy Spirit. If you've gained insights this morning, it's because the Holy Spirit is present. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your people who have gathered to work through and wrestle through these questions. I pray for your blessing upon them as they go out and take on this world. And the opportunities to bring glory to you will abound before us this week. I just know it. I pray, Father, that you help us to be faithful in the midst of that. But for right now, I ask as we move on into our afternoon, that you would go before us. Allow time of of relaxation and rest for your people. Refresh us, Father. It's in Jesus' name we ask for this. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.